Welcome to Where Parents Talk. I'm Leanne Castellino. Our guest today is a father of two, a clinical neuropsychologist, lecturer, and best-selling author. He is the founder of the Sticks Root Group and has been in private practice for over 35 years. Dr. William Sticks Root's latest book, co-authored with Ned Johnson, is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a happy home. Dr. William Sticksroot joins us from Maryland. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Leanne. It's nice, nice to be here. And call me Bill. Bill. So, Bill, could you tell me what was the motivation to write this book? Well, what happened is our first book, The Self-Driven Child, uh, was about, it had a thesis, which is that having a sense of control is hugely beneficial for children and teenagers and, and, and everybody really. This having meaning, not feeling helpless, not feeling hopeless, not feeling passive, or not feeling overwhelmed or obsessively driven. Having a healthy sense of control that I, I can manage my life is really beneficial. And so, in our book, there's the first book. There's a lot of practical suggestions, and and our 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 editor, our, our agent actually said write a second book that just makes it easier to do this stuff, that, 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 that gives people the language that helps communicate in a way that can build this kind of sense of control, the self-driven child. So it was really, it was really his idea. We, we really liked the idea. Um, you know, there's a classic book about communicating with kids called How to Listen So Kids Will Talk and Talk So Kids Will Listen. But it's 40 years old. 40 years old. So we, we wanted to write a book that shares a lot of what Ned and I have learned in communicating with kids between the two of us for 65 years, talking one-on-one with kids and teenagers. So, yeah. And on on that note, uh, we noted that you've been in private practice for over 35 years. You've seen all Mm -hmm. kinds of things in that time uh, in all the various uh, roles that you have and responsibilities. How did you go about distilling the most salient points into a book like this one? Well, you know, we, we think that um, what it was is that it, this idea, I've had this idea for 30, for, since 1986, which is parents, as kids get older, we should think of ourselves more as consultants to our kids than as their manager or there's their boss. With the idea that ideally kids are able to run their own life before they go off to college. And so that, that my, that's my focus. Because I, I see so many kids who go off to college and they bomb that they're home by November because they, sim- they simply haven't had enough experience really running their own life. And I want, I want parents to be helping kids figure out who do I want to be as opposed to thinking, here's, where you, here's who you need to be. And so in, in this book, we, we, we have a chapter on how, how, how you build connection because really, ideally what we want is you want to feel connected to our kids and they to us, because we're going to, Ned might, Ned might have said, that we're, ideally, we're going to have more time with our kids as adults than we do as kids. And so we have a chapter on, on how, how do you build that close connection? How do you communicate in a way that kids trust you and will come to you when they have difficulties? And we thought about, here's the language of, of this idea of a parent's consultant. Here's how a consultant talks and here's how a consultant listens. And we also have this idea in both books that ideally parents can serve as, non, as a non-anxious presence in their families, Me- meaning 
This is somebody who, who can handle stuff without flipping out. So the kids, when kids have a problem, the, the, the parents don't get more upset than the kid does. And, and so we just, thought, we just thought about how do we communicate? How do we communicate a non-anxious presence? What, what, what's the language of a parent consultant? And then, Leanne, we thought about what's, what, what are the issues that people are dealing with? So, so talking about motivation, communicating with kids about technology and sleep. We just thought about the stuff that comes up all the time in our personal lives and also in our clinical lives. It is such an important point because in many families, the stumbling block, and you know this from, from your practice, I'm sure, the main stumbling block is I know there's a problem, but I don't know how to communicate or convey or explicitly express myself to fix it. So how would you go about um, suggesting uh, some effective strategies generally in how parents can be better communicators and better listeners with their, with their children? So the first thing, in the first chapter, we talk about um, probably the key to feeling close to your kids is, is practicing empathy. And we're, the way we're, as, as mammals, we're wired to protect them from, and, and when, when, from, from difficulty and when they're upset to soothe them. So we tend to, when kids bring us a problem, we oftentimes just say, well, it's not that big, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. I don't know why you're so upset. And, and what, what makes kids really feel close to parents is that parents listen respectfully without judging and don't tell them what to do. In fact, we, we, we interviewed dozens of kids, Leanne, in, in, in writing the book. And we simply asked them, who do you feel closest to? And sometimes it was mom or dad, but, but oftentimes it was an uncle or a cousin or, or older friend, somebody. And, and we said, what is it about them that, that makes you feel close? And invariably, they listen to me without judging and they don't tell me what to do. So I, I think the first thing is, is, the, is this practice of reflective listening. So that if, if, you, if you tell me you know, I had a really bad day and I, 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 really, I, I made a presentation, I, I kind of screwed it up. And I might say that it sounds like you, you, it was really frustrating. You felt really embarrassed. I, I try to let you know, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. I'm not judging it. And also that we, we validate feelings, meaning you know, if you say, I, I was really embarrassed, I, I probably feel that way too. You know, that, that kind of idea that it's normal to feel like that. That, that. that empathy and validation are the keys really for helping kids when they're upset. And, and it's not that we necessarily condone everything that they're doing. It's just simply that the feeling itself, we, we understand, we try to understand it rather than judge it. And we validate that a lot of people would feel like that. So that, that, that's, that's really one of the keys. And that, that's, that's why our first chapter is about that, that, that use of empathy and validation to, to build closeness. And we, we have other, there's other stuff in there too, in, in terms of, of uh, for example, just spending one-on-one -on -one time with kids. I mean, a lot of families just don't think they have a lot of family time. But the way you really get to know somebody is spend time with them one-on-one. -on -one. And so we encourage parents to spend individual time every week with, with each kid. Uh, just that that's the way you really feel connected. So that, that, that's one thing. And the second thing, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> the second thing is this language of consultant. We, we offer our help and we, or we offer our advice, but we don't try to force it. So I mean, when, when, a, when a family says, when a parent says, God, I, I've told him a million times, or, I keep trying to get him to see. Well, we recommend don't do that. Don't tell him, don't try to change the energy. And just basically offer, say, you know, I've got an idea about that. You want to hear it? 
You know, I, I got what I hear might take, I got some advice. <laughs> it's all yours if you want it. Or, you know, for whatever it's worth. Yeah. Or um, I'm wondering what would happen if you did it this way, where it's just, it's tentative, it's respectful, it's offering, but it's not trying to change kids. We have a chapter in the book, Leanne, about, about change. And it, it, simply the science of change says you can't change somebody unless they're asking you to help them change. You know, and, we, and, we, and we as parents spend a lot of time trying to change kids without realizing that the more we try to change them, the more they hang on to whatever it is. I have to tell you, Dr. Sixrood, it sounds so simple how you, when you explain it and you clarify it and you provide the language, but you know, when you're a parent, as you may, you know, have experienced yourself and you're in the moment and there's deadlines and things you got to get done and your patience is running thin and all of those things are happening to step back and say, you know what, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to be empathetic. I'm going to listen. And all of the things that you just said is a real challenge. So yeah. what, what, what could you offer on that front for parents on how to basically practice that uh, so that they become you know, more effective at it? Yeah. So, and I mean, basically we do the best we can. And, and luckily you know, <laughs> kids don't need perfect parents, you know, but and, 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 and if, if, we're, if we move in this direction, that's, we use that language quite a bit, move in the direction of becoming a non-anxious presence in your family. So this is somebody that is not highly anxious and emotionally reactive. So that when kids, because it's just so much easier to help our kids solve their problems if we can stay calm. So but move in that direction, it doesn't have to be perfect. And the same thing with this kind of communication. There, there are times where you say, I, I can't take, I, I don't have time for this right now. Can, can you figure it out. And then later you apologize. I mean, the, we, we, apologizing to kids is a really powerful thing. I mean, I'm, I'm 71 years old and I don't remember the exact times anymore, but I remember when I was in my forties, I could still remember times when my father came up and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, kinda, I, I, I really had a hard day at school. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I kind of went off on you hard day at work, you know, and, and like that. And it meant so much to me to be retreated so respectfully. So I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, that, 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 that changing these patterns could, could take work. But also you can see results immediately in, in, in many cases. We gave a lecture uh, in Palo Alto a couple of years ago. This story is actually in the book. Um, and and we, we, uh, about offer help, offer advice. Don't try to force it on kids. If, if, if they bring you a problem, you could kind of listen to, to let you know you're trying to understand and say, you know, maybe I, if there's a way that I can help, let me know, as opposed to, to, to launching into solving it for. Them. And so the, this woman emails us the next day and says, I got home from, 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 from your lecture last night. This is before COVID, but your, your lecture last night. And my seventh grade son was in tears. And he said, I'm the weakest kid in seventh grade. She said, ordinarily, I would have tried to talk him out of it. I said, no, that, that can't be right. You're, you're strong. Or I would have said, well, let's, let's call the PA teacher. and Maybe we can get you some exercises to get stronger. And I didn't. He said, I just said that. I said, that sounds like that, that would suck. You know, if you want to be strong and you feel like the weakest kids, that, that sounds kind of hard. Let, we'll talk in the morning. Let me know if there's any way I can help. And the next morning, the kid brings a written plan. For, for how he can get stronger in, in ways that, mom, that his mom can support him, you know, to mm -hmm. take me to the, they got a chin-up bar at, the, you know, at, the, at the, the park up the street, we would do that. And the kid, the kid figured it out himself. And one of the things we emphasize in the book, Leon, is this how important it is 
for kids to have experience solving their own problems. Because it's that experience, if something stressful happens, you're upset and you kind of figure out what to do, that changes the brain in a way that the next time you're upset, rather than freaking out or just getting really upset, you go into coping mode. And we want, kid, we want kids to have a lot of a practice with our support and our help when necessary, but going into coping mode, because that's what trains the brain to be coping, to develop what we call high stress tolerance, as opposed to avoiding hard things or freaking out or, or, or getting really anxious. So building and strengthening your coping muscles, what you're talking about. Well, yeah. And the same thing yeah, for, 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 for kids, but also for us, I mean, just, just practicing a little bit. Just this, this, this woman, the first time she, she, she zipped her lip and she didn't try to tell her kid what to do or solve the problem. She just listened and said, if there's a way that I can help, let me know. It, it, she said it was just, it was transformative you know, that this one, this one ship. And what we're, what we're saying what we're recommending, it's not really hard. I mean, it's, it's not hard to understand. It's pretty simple stuff, but emotionally it's hard in some ways because, because if we aren't offering help, if we aren't trying to control our kid, we feel a low sense of control and a low sense of control is the most stressful thing in the universe. So we, we have to kind of work on our own emotions, but it's a, it's a, it becomes a practice. It becomes a practice of communicating with my kid in a way that's respectful. Trying, trying to not fight about the same thing over and over again, which is always toxic. Taking this attitude of, of a consultant where my job is, is not to, to tell my kid, here's, 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 here's what you need to do, here's who you need to be, is to help him figure out, what kind, who, who do you want to be? What kind of life do you want? How can I help you get there? It is such a subtle change that you are really talking about here, but it's so powerful as you describe it. I'm curious, in the course of all the interviews that you did for the book, um, you know, and looking at the science and the research in this space, did anything surprise you personally? You know, um, I, I tend to, that's a really good question, Leanne. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, um, I think the thing maybe that's most surprising was, was, was that this, every place I look to try to understand how do we help kids manage virtually anything? I, what, I, what I came across is this idea that you really, that, that you really can't make it, you can't really make another person do something that every place I look to understand, how do you help kids change in a positive way? Every approach says you can't, if it, feels, if it feels to the kid like you're trying to change him or change her, you're gonna get resistance. And, and we talk in the book uh, about, about this idea that most of us are ambivalent about changing. And the more we argue, you, you should do this. It's not, for example, you got an underachieving kid. It's not like the kid's unaware that maybe it'd be a good thing if I did better but also the kids are aware that, that I've tried in the past and I haven't been able to do it. And if I really try and I can't do it, that'll be a real double failure for me. So they're ambivalent. And if we argue more this, how important it is to change, they, 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 they dig in their heels. And I thought every place I looked, Leanne, to try to understand how do we help kids change, it started with we work on ourselves. We, we work on changing our own steps to help, a, help our kids change. 
This topic is particularly fascinating and the timing of your book, I think, is so interesting given the age we live in now where, you know, communication platforms and vehicles are absolutely all over the place with respect to, you know, social media, technology, devices, all the things that you and I know about. And you have been in practice for all that time and prior to that as well. So you have such an interesting perspective, presumably about communication and effective communication given all these other platforms available at our disposal. Are they helping or hindering uh, in your opinion? Well, I, I, I think ultimately they're hindering. And I say that in part because I mean, what, certainly one of the most surprising things but ultimately, when I think about it, maybe it's not that surprising. But in some ways, it's shocking that one of the things, we've seen this, this significant increase in anxiety and depression in, in young people, and that's been going on for some time, um, and, and certainly long before the pandemic. But the other thing that's been increasing dramatically in teenagers and young adults is loneliness. And we, we see teenagers who, who, who want to be connected 24-7 but it's not face-to-face and we we evolve to feel close and feel connected face-to-face. And so I think, so I I do think these technological changes have contributed to this increase in anxiety and depression in in part because they undermine kids' sense of control. Uh, It's it's interesting that um, a couple of years ago, 200 psychologists signed a letter addressed to the president of the American Psychological Association, asking the Psychological Association to censure psychologists who are working in Silicon Valley using behavioral and motivational techniques, knowingly creating products that are as addictive as possible. And I think so that, that, that these products that, that, that are so hard to stop, it's hard to stop thinking about them, that lowers our sense of control. And certainly, the, the social media, Instagram, we put post, it's, well, girls will spend two hours photoshopping things and presenting something that, that, that doesn't look like them and then being judged on. So I, I, I think that ultimately that these changes in technology have, have probably not been positive from a social and emotional point of view. And I think that there's, uh, Terry, uh, Sherry Turkle wrote a great book in 2016, I think, called reclaiming conversation about just how important that face-to-face conversation, face-to-face interaction is for us to feel safe, for us to feel connected with each other. What would you say that you are most proud of with this book? Well, I would say that, um, that, <laughs> well, I'll say it this way, Leah, that, uh, the self-driven child is really very, very successful, and people all over the world really got a lot out of it. And you know, I, back back in the day when when I buy a rock and roll album, so often I buy a, a band's second album, and um, <laughs> it'd be a disappointment because they use all their best material on the first album. So I, I was a little concerned about about are, are we going to have enough? I, mean, I did. I, I had a ton of material because I've been researching stuff for years for the first book. But I really kind of started from scratch on this one. And I, I, the thing that surprised me the most is we got a lot of really good stuff. Here. <laughs> you know, I, I just was able, I was able to explore some things that, I, just, that I, I knew something about, but not very much about. For example, 
we have a chapter about expectations, about kind of positive versus toxic expectations. And we talk about materialism. And it's interesting because I've known that there's a lot of research suggests that our whole culture, and particularly for young people, has become increasingly materialistic, you know, focused on, 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 obsess- on possessions, on looks, on, on fame, on things that kind of external things. And it's not that any of these things are bad. It's just that if you intentionally pursue them, it's associated with misery. And, and, and so I, I was happy that we were able to, 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 to explore stuff, pull together a, a bunch of new uh, stories. And, 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 and as we were writing the book, you know, we, something would happen that would just illustrate these points. And so I, I, I was, frankly, I was surprised that we, we, we were able to pull together so much new kind of information, some, some great examples. We just kind of made ourselves think about the, the language we use communicating with our own kids. And Ned has teenagers. I have young adult kids. I have grandchildren. The, the language I use to communicate with them, the language I use to communicate with my, with my ch- child, my, my children clients and my, my uh, adolescent and young adult clients and pulling that stuff together. I'm surprised it came out so well. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful thing to say for sure. L- let me ask you, Dr. Stixford, um, you know, we always like to, to end uh, everything that we do on, on this um, website on a positive and optimistic note. Uh, certainly this topic can be very, um, you know, heavy uh, in a lot of families and can be um, in some ways depressing uh, if you're not, if you don't know what you're doing and you can feel alone and isolated as a parent. So what gives you hope? You've got this book out now. Uh, you, you're really happy with how it turned out, but what gives you hope uh, in terms of moving forward around the subject of communication um, and parents and their kids? Well, in the book, we talk about three kinds of errors the errors we make in our thinking that create the misery. And it, 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 that these are, are things that have been identified through cognitive behavioral therapy as, um, as three of the kind of thinking errors or, or the, the distortions in thinking that can make us miserable. And, and one is simply catastrophizing. And I, I, I think that, and, and, and one is we have the idea that, well, things should be this, this and things are supposed to be different than they are, or you're supposed to be different, or I should be better than I am, or they, they, people should treat me differently. And for really, where's the evidence that that's true? Where, where is it written that things are supposed to be different than they are? Which leads me to think that, it, that I, I, I assume that the world is as it should be, that, that right now we want to make it better. But, but, we, but ideally, we start off by making peace with where it is. And the other error is what they call the fortune-telling error, which is that I can see how the future is going to be. So there's, there's certainly there, there's trends that are negative. We think, oh, my God, climate change. Uh, well, but you, you think that, that people, people in biblical times we're saying, how could things possibly get any worse? You know, the, the, the end of the world must be near. You know, we're going back several thousand years here. That the people have always had that tendency to think that, 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 that some people, that, that things, things are just getting worse and it's just going to get worse and worse. And it turned out, well, that wasn't true. And people, every, every new innovation, whether the radio or TV or the waltz, 
people have, some people, oh my God, this is the end of civilization. And, and I, I'm optimistic that, that, that our planet what will what wants to heal itself and will will guide us to, to heal it. So I just think that that if we if we if we if we have the idea, well, I know things are going to be terrible and there's going to get, well, challenge that thinking. Talk back to that thinking because nobody really knows. I mean, and I, and I think about I think about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. And it just it it happened in a way that that, that was larger than any of us could really think about. That that's what gives me hope is the idea that 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 we're, we're that evolution progresses and we're evolving. The plant is evolving, and in ways that we can't understand. And, and if we do the best we can to be the best human beings we can and treat our kids the best we can, I, I I'm pretty I, I'm pretty sure things are going to work out. Dr. William Stixrude, clinical neuropsychologist and co-author of What Do You Say? It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it, Leah. Be well. Thank you.